Okay, so uh, we've been defining um, some of the attributes you think of as intelligence. Um, what else? Yeah. Okay, good. Respond to the environment. What else? Okay. Memory. What else? Ah, okay. Um, so communication. Is that close enough? Okay. What else? Creativity. Good. What else? Would you put in, lump into intelligence? So if I were to um, if I were to say someone is intelligent, what kinds of uh, things come to mind for that? What do you see? Educated. Educated. What's that? Big brained. Big brained. What else? Uses a lot of big words. Okay. So vocabulary, advanced vocabulary. A good student. Someone who's intelligent, articulate, interesting. Um, most of that stuff doesn't necessarily apply to solving problems. Someone can be very articulate, you know, big-brained. Um, they can be a good student. But they may not be able to solve problems, and it certainly doesn't necessarily um, relate to interpersonal awareness, right? So we've got some ideas about what intelligence is. Where do we get those ideas? Say, oh, that's smart. Yeah. Somebody says, "Oh, that's smart." Media, yeah, movies, TV, books, magazines. Um, you're, it's inculcated into you. There, there's your $20 word for you. That makes me smart. It's inculcated as part of your educational process, right? What else? Culture, Culture society, parents. What's that? Stereotypes, absolutely. Huge influence. So um, what we think of culturally as intelligence is at odds with sort of what we define as our sort of basic attributes of intelligence. That kind of person may not be able to do these things. What is your book, when your book defines intelligence, it uses a pretty specific definition. What does it say? Good. If it's a good characteristic, it's belongs in the, like, under the umbrella 
Right, good. Yeah, and that's kind of what you came up with when I said, when I get you to think of someone who's intelligent, what comes to mind? Um, those are those kind of culturally derived sort of stereotypical notions of intelligence. So intelligence, where is it? I had it in here somewhere. Um, Act purposefully, think rationally. And what else? Okay, so um, you pretty much picked up all of that stuff in your own notions of what intelligence is. Um, Something, an organism that acts purposefully, what does that imply? Good instincts. Good instincts, what's that? Like bees. bees act purposefully for why? What, for, well, how so? They gather honey, or they gather um, pollen to make honey. So they gather pollen to make honey. Do they fly around to the flowers, do you think, saying, Ooh, I'm going around to gather pollen to make honey. I mean, it's a general idea. Kind of like that. Okay. So that could be instinct. It could be, um, you know, I would have a hard time ascribing a conscious sense of purpose to um, bees uh, making honey. What it... Yeah. Right, what's that? Yeah. So this kind of gets at um, a couple of things. For one thing, the no sort of the notion of free will, that I act purposefully. It also implies uh, planning. Um, and for a long time, we thought animals don't do planning, right? But it turns out in some relatively recent research, some experiments are showing that animals apparently have the capacity to uh, sort of visualize or envision the future and, um, and as well as to remember the past and to sort of um, have this time-based um, uh, thinking that we thought humans were somewhat unique at. I can't remember. Uh, I just saw the results and I didn't read the uh, the methodology. Yeah. Um, but for example, uh, how does that differ from how does acting purposefully differ from operant conditioning, or is it the same as operant conditioning? When you're operantly conditioned to do something. Um, you're responding to consequences that you've received in the future, in the past, I'm sorry. So how about the free will? So where does free will come in? Well, I mean, that would challenge the operative condition, right? You're making a choice about it, not just going, that works, that works, you know? 
But the question then is, is there any such thing as free will, or is the choices that we think we're making actually part of our past conditioning? Um, now, certainly we can choose to suffer, right? And an animal that was, if we were operating strictly from operant conditioning, we probably wouldn't choose to suffer. Um, so we can, we can sort of make some of those kinds of choices. What about thinking rationally? What is that? What does that apply, thinking rationally? Okay. Decisions, and what do you need to do to make decisions? What do you do while you're making decisions? What's the process? Good. So you identify different options and you make choices. How do you identify the how do you identify those options and how do you make choices? Well, think about it in terms of um, logic, right? And uh, we can have two different sets of um, conditions, A and B in this case. And we can also have um, situations where A is not exclusive of B. So there's some overlap here. Here, A is exclusive um, from B, but A is um, not non-exclusive. And this notion of exclusivity, non-exclusivity forms the basis of logic. And that's part of thinking rationally. That's part of sort of seeing your options, seeing how they overlap. Um, and being able to make those logical decisions. This one's interesting. Dealing effectively with the environment. What's that, what's that about? Interaction with... Why, what is it about dealing effectively with the environment that makes you intelligent? Those all, all those seem to be the same thing, in a way. They all seem to, okay, we'll get to that in a second. What is it about dealing with the environment that's intelligent? Okay, so the environment places limitations on what you're doing. The environment also, in addition to placing limitations, it provides opportunities, right? And so dealing effectively with the environment essentially comes down to adaptivity, the ability to adapt 
effectively and to cope effectively with changing environmental conditions. Again, one of the things that we consider very human, humans have an extraordinary ability to, uh, do, 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 extraordinary ability to adapt, <laughs> sometimes, some days it's like that, to adapt to changing environmental conditions, and that's one thing that's allowed us to thrive on this planet as the environment has changed over the last couple million years or so. Okay? Um, so, let's get to... I'm sorry, what's your name again? Aiden. Dave. Dave, I'm sorry. Let's get to Dave's uh, point. Aren't all three of these kind of the same thing? Are they? They all happen at the same time. Good. And they're really, for the most part, they're all supporting this. They're all supporting adaptivity and they're all supporting the ability for us to survive and thrive. And so in some ways, intelligence is what allows us to kind of keep going. Um, and that's sort of, this is intelligence when we think of intelligence in this broad sense. Um, I'll get to you in a second. Now, this, these things aren't limited to humans. Animals do these things. But um, we talk about humans doing them in, um, you know, in a, in a lot of ways differently than, um, than animals. But not to say that animals don't have intelligence. They do have all of these um, uh, capacities. Yeah, question here. Yeah, well, uh, the, the acting implies. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I think that's reasonable. Yeah, that's a good point. You have, in, you have to plan, and you have to have the purpose, but you have to do it, too, right? Yeah, because um, there are a lot of people who sit and plan things and never do them. No, we probably would might consider them intelligent, but... That's what I was wondering. Not not maximizing their intelligence, yeah. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Do you have a question? No? No? Okay. Other questions, comments on intelligence itself, the essence of intelligence? Yeah. So every person does one of these things. Does that make everybody intelligent? Um, well, first of all, everybody does all of these things, right? Um, some of us do it better, and some of us not so better. And that's where the continuum of intelligence is going to lie. Plus, the kind of intelligence that you brought to mind when I said, think of someone who's intelligent, and you had this vision or this idea of what intelligence is come to mind, which had a lot to do with sort of vocabulary and, um, you know, big brains and schooling and education and all that. Um, you know, that's really just one thin form of intelligence. And what 
the what the sort of more advanced or more recent theories are is that intelligence functions on a number of different levels. And that kind of intelligence is one layer, but then there's other layers of intelligence, like emotional intelligence, for example. And so that's when we get into Gardner's theories of multiple intelligences and all that, which we'll talk about. But um, this is probably a more useful definition in terms of defining intelligence in a broader sense than just book learning, for example, right? Um, you certainly would say that um, a uh, farmer in a undeveloped country, quote-unquote undeveloped country, um, you know, a subsistence farmer eking out a living, you would probably say that person is intelligent. But that person doesn't come to mind when you think intelligence, right? That person is dealing effectively with the environment, thinking rationally, and acting purposefully. So in, in this way, this kind of definition helps us to encompass a lot more interesting ideas. And I think, ultimately, this is what adaptivity is what we want to really be thinking about in terms of intelligence. Can I adapt appropriately to my environment? Change what I'm doing, um, keep doing the things that are working, not do the things anymore that aren't working. Right? Uh, any other ideas on this, comments, before we move on here? See if the dimmers got fixed. Nope. Thanks a lot, guys. I put in a call for this last week, and they didn't come to fix it. Okay, I'll have to put in another call. We fortunately have enough illumination from out there that I can probably turn off these lights. Is that going to be too dark? Yeah, question. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't read that data. What did it say? So people with higher IQ scores showed less brain activity measurement. Were they using like functional MRIs? Do you know what method they were using? Okay. Um, think back to um, Psi 201A when you took 201A, if you took it. Um, and um, in neuroscience, uh, they talk about the different ways that we can measure brain activity. And the way that I like, so we got functional MRIs, which basically um, disrupt the uh, rotation of um, atom, the rotation of electrons around atoms, and measure what happens when that comes back into uh, alignment, when all those rotational things come back into alignment. That's essentially how I understand it. The PET scan, what does that measure? Do you remember? PET, positron emission tomography. What does it actually measure, though? Good. Which parts of your brain are using more glucose or less glucose? Um, the regular MRI, which isn't very useful because it mostly shows structure. So um, those are the three ones that are used mainly to study brain function. Well, so I give somebody a task to do memorize this stuff, and they memorize it. 
And while they're memorizing it, I measure what parts of the brains are using more glucose or which parts are more active. And I'm supposed to infer from that that those parts of the brain are the ones that are being used more. And so maybe that's where the thinking is happening. It's not very useful in, for the most part. Um, I'd like to think of it this way, at least at the, at the level that neuroimaging is at now. Um, if I were going to, um, let's say I drive up outside your house, and um, I want to figure out what you do at night. Right. So I drive up there at sunset, and I look at your house, and I see a light on in, the, uh, in one room. And I see the light go off in that room, and a second later I see a light go on in another room. And um, a minute later I smell food cooking, and uh, then uh, I see the light go off in that room and I don't smell food cooking anymore, and I see the light go on in a different room, um, I'm probably going to conclude that, um, you know, you were in one room, you went to a kitchen, you cooked some dinner, and then you left that room and went to a dining room to eat it, right? Because I know something about how houses are built, right? Same kind of thing with brains. I, we know something about how brains are built, how they're constructed, how their structure is, and we can watch the lights go on and the lights go off, but it's not telling me anything, for example, of the methods that you're using to kind of cook the food. What kinds of pans are you using? What recipes are you using? What kinds of raw ingredients are you using? Right? So a lot of brain imaging is kind of, um, is kind of looking into the house from the outside and trying to figure out what's going on inside the house from the patterns on the shades you know, the light's going on and the light's going on. I'm sorry, I forgot to say that. You'd have to have the shades down so I couldn't see you inside moving around, right? So I see, you know, shades and I see shadows, and that's about it. Um, so the question is, if we see someone with a lot of brain activity, does that mean that they're smarter? Maybe less brain activity means they're more efficient at processing information, right? So... It's hard to interpret that kind of stuff, right? Interesting. The situation on a larger level than oh two plus two is four. Okay, here's your paper. You know, Interesting. So you give um, a woman a math problem. There's more brain activity. Give a man a math problem. There's less brain activity. Um, think about that when I talk about um, stereotype threat mm -hmm. later. Of course, if you already are thinking about stereotype threat, then you know what I'm thinking. Okay, other um, questions, ideas? Yeah. Get into the meat of things here, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the treat is a mind of Mencia clip, yeah. 
that will uh, help illustrate a concept that I'm talking about. <laughs> Anything else? Okay. Um, so if we could actually see that, thanks a lot, son. I'm going to have to talk about maybe moving to a different room. Um, when, we, when I talk about intelligence, I, I like to put this in a social and cultural context, um, as I do with a lot of things in this class. Psychology, the study of behavior, but also what we know about behavior is affected strongly by social and historical forces. So it's hard to talk about psychology without talking about that stuff. So it all kind of starts out, um, the, 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 the discussion of intelligence kind of originates with uh, Darwin's um, theory of natural selection. And in The Origin of Species, Darwin suggests that um, animals, organisms, adapt to their environment. They change as a function of survival in their environment. Those organisms that um, survive, change and survive, change their behavior, change um, th those organisms that have physical characteristics that are more adaptive to their environments, are more likely to survive to reproductive age, are more likely to reproduce, and the genetic factors that lead to those behaviors or lead to those physical characteristics will be transmitted as a uh, function of reproduction. Well, um, Galton reads uh, Darwin, as everybody's doing at that time. The Darwin is writing The Origin of Species, I think it was in 1854, does anybody know? I should have that date there. Um, Galton suggests in Hereditary Genius that um, intelligence, that is uh, being um, able to um, uh, what was thought of as intelligence at that time, which is essentially uh, being part of the um, the good class of people rather than the rabble, you know, the underclass. So those characteristics are hereditarily passed on. They're genetically passed on. So Galton's going to say basically um, intelligence is a genetic function. Smart people have smart babies. Dumb people have dumb babies. That's kind of uh, problematic, um, especially um, in the latter part of the 19th century and the early part of the 20th century, because this fellow, uh, Henry Goddard, is going to come along, and um, he's going to start documenting cases of people who, for some reason, um, who would people who would normally be part of this good class um, for some reason mixed themselves up with people in the underclass, mixed themselves up with the rabble, and there were um, disastrous consequences. Um, that is, if you, um, if someone who is from the, um, you know, the educated class has a child with someone who is from the uneducated class, or worse yet, someone who is what they called at the time feeble-minded or mentally defective, um, then your children would be more likely 
to be mentally defective or feeble-minded as a result. So what he starts advocating for is the idea that in order to maintain um, you know, these good classes of people, we had to make sure that people who were feeble-minded didn't reproduce. And this is um, feeding um, a national movement. It, you know, it wasn't necessarily a popular movement, but there was a significant national movement toward eugenics. What does essentially eugenics mean? Anybody know? So, um, in some way, prohibiting those who are undesirable members of the race or the species from reproducing, or at least from polluting the genetic inheritance of the good classes, right? And here's here's uh, here's how Goddard uh, talks about this. Um, Well, I'll, I'll go into, into an example that he uses here before I talk about that. Um, question, questions about this? Now, first of all, yeah, go ahead. How was he finding his people? How is, people would say, oh, I somebody undesirable. Good, good. How was he finding his people? I'll talk about his methods in a second, or in a few minutes. Um, eugenics, um, at this time, um, here's what's going on. It wasn't practiced widely out unless you were in a situation where you couldn't resist. So at this time, what would happen is mentally defective individuals would oftentimes wind up in prisons, would wind up in institutions. And what, uh, what the major part of the eugenics movement was at this time was to uh, sterilize people in institutions who were mentally defective. And there were thousands of these sterilizations all across the United States. This is a movement that was happening in Europe and in the United States. Um, California had the largest number of um, sterilizations, actually. Um, so if you think that Hitler, you know, got his ideas out of a vacuum, no. Actually, his ideas for um, eugenics, which his eugenics program started in the uh, early 1930s, um, originated from the ideas um, that were coming out of Europe and uh, the United States even. So, um, Fortunately, the Supreme Court um, strikes down most of the laws when they're challenged in the United States that allowed uh, forced sterilizations. But I have some anecdotal uh, a story that I uh, heard about that there were actually forced sterilizations going on in um, uh, Native American populations until the 1980s, but I don't have any um, real reliable information about that. I don't know what the purposes were. That's a good question. And there are individuals, for example, incarcerated people, oftentimes sex offenders, who will um, go through sterilization um, voluntarily. Um, but um, that's a different story, yeah. Um, well, for uh, women, it would mean essentially tubal ligation, so um, severing the fallopian tube so that the um, ova can't make it to the uterus and be, uh, well, can't make it to the fallopian tube and be 
um, uh, fertilized. For men, it's essentially um, castration or vasectomy, so cutting the vas deferens, which leads from the testy to the um, seminal vesicle where it's mixed with semen. Yeah. Uh, questions over here? Now, for men who are um, incarcerated for uh, sex crimes and that choose um, castration, for example, it's often it's done to decrease the libido mostly, rather than um, for sterilization purposes. But yeah, has the same effect. Um, okay, so I was hoping that that sun would go down just a little bit more, because I've I've got a uh, illustration here. Hopefully you can see this. This is from Goddard's book called The Kalakak Family, a study in the heredity of feeble-mindedness. And um, Goddard uh, sets out to demonstrate in this book, using this case study of the Kalakak family, that if you mix yourself up with someone who's feeble-minded, you're going to wind up with um, a, a national disaster, essentially, is the way he'll phrase it. Um, you'll notice that there are squares and circles here. Circles indicate um, women. Squares indicate men. So this is a lineage chart. The uh, ends indicate normal, as in not feeble-minded. And the Fs indicate uh, feeble-mindedness, individuals who are feeble-minded. So um, here's what happens. Um, this fellow, Martin Kalakak Sr., is a Revolutionary War soldier. And here's how uh, Goddard describes him. He says, uh, oops, let me find the pair. There we are. Um, he says, when Martin Kalakak Sr. of the good family, okay, was a boy of 15, his father died leaving him without parental care or oversight. All right. Just before attaining his majority, the young man joined one of the numerous military companies that were formed to protect the country at the beginning of the revolution. At one of the taverns frequented by the militia, he met a feeble-minded girl by whom he became the father of a feeble-minded son. The child was given by its mother the name of the father in full, and thus has been handed down to posterity the father's name and the mother's mental capacity. This is Martin Kalakak Jr. here. And the, um, if, you, uh, if you were able to read this above this uh, circle in the F, first of all, the line here between the N and the F, between Martin Kalakak uh, Sr. and the uh, line says, not married. And then above here it says, the nameless, feeble-minded girl. Nice, huh? So, um, this illegitimate boy was Martin Kalakak Jr., 
the great, uh, great, great grandfather. Um, and from him have come 480 descendants uh, by 1913, apparently. Um, 153 of these, we have conclusive proof, were or are feeble-minded, while only 46 have been known to be normal. The rest are unknown or doubtful. So uh, 480, and out of that 480, they've accounted for um, uh, 100, about 200. So less than half have been accounted for. And the rest of them, they just don't know about. So, but based on this data, he'll go on to make his case. Yeah, question, David? Aside from oh, sorry. class status, what exactly is his definition of feeble-minded? Ah, the, good question. It really is the root of it. Um, the way that they'll um, describe feeble-mindedness. Um, Um, stand by. I don't have that in this uh, excerpt that I have. That's in a, that's in the first chapter, and I have only the second chapter. So but basically I'll, just based on class and not according to him, but I think you'll see that it, it does. Yeah, it is based on class. Um. Yeah, right. Um, the way that they did this mostly is by gathering marriage records and sort of tracing marriage records back through time. They started out with one individual and then they started tracing backwards from there. So uh, Goddard goes on then to say, um, among these 480 descendants, 36 have been illegitimate. There have been 33 sexually immoral persons, mostly prostitutes. There have been 24 confirmed alcoholics. There have been three epileptics. 82 died in infancy. Eight kept houses of ill fame, and three were criminal. Um, these people have married into other families, generally of about the same type, so that we now have on record and charted 1,146 individuals. Of this large group, we have discovered that 262 were feeble-minded, while 197 were considered normal, the remaining 581 being still undetermined. Undetermined, as here implied, often means that we knew nothing about the person, but that we could not decide. Uh, there were people we can scarcely recognize as normal. Um, frequently, they are not what we would call good members of society. Right? Yeah, question? So the study has nothing to do with their environment. It's only about who the people are themselves. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what would lead you to believe that environment might be a factor here? Yeah, they didn't have data for a lot of them. They know who they were and they couldn't decide, or they just didn't know they had a court I missed the question, I guess. Did they ever 
look at a person and say, I can't tell if they're normal or feeble-minded? Oh, I see. Well, a lot of these people are dead. So they're, assume, they're sort of assuming from the records, if they're not a good member of society, then they're probably feeble-minded. And if they're not feeble-minded, they're of lesser stock. We wouldn't want to mix our genetic uh, material with them, yes. That would weaken the race, right? <laughs> yeah, that's essentially all he's doing is supporting his position with pretty specious uh, data, yeah. So, um, the, uh, incidentally, um, so let's get back to this issue of environment. What would lead you to believe that environment might be a factor in this lineage separately from this lineage? We don't have the, I mean, we don't have the, the money to go to school and become unfeeble-minded. I mean, it's, or, you know. So here we've got a nameless, unmarried, feeble-minded girl who has a son, and that son is, um, you know, probably not going to have access to the same kinds of resources as, above this end, incidentally, is a label called the lawful wife, um, as the lawful wife does with the husband who's getting a pension from the Revolutionary War, right? So, um, so yeah, huge differences between these groups, but Goddard doesn't care about that. He wants to establish that intelligence is inherited, and if we allow these um, unintelligent, feeble-minded people to mix with the good classes, then we're going to weaken the species. We're going to weaken the race. Yeah. And they don't consider um, Martin Kallikak Sr. to be unintelligent. Yeah. See, that's the whole thing. They talk about all these, um, you know, morally repugnant individuals, but guess what? He wasn't married at the time. But, um, yeah. Or that he has, a, that he has an illegitimate child. He has an illegitimate child, sure. Um, like hearsay, too. There's a lot of hearsay in this, and I'll, and I'll show you. Right. So, you know, this is sometime not long during the Revolutionary War, probably. So that's uh, 76, 130, 140 years, yeah. So he goes on to say, um, in 1803, Martin Kallikak Jr., this guy, otherwise known as the, quote, old horror, that's a, that's a good one, huh? Married Rhoda Zabeth, a normal woman. They had ten children, of whom one died in infancy and another died at birth with the mother. Of those who lived, the oldest was Millard, this one. Where are the other nine on this chart, you know? So this lineage, this sort of way of tracking this lineage leaves out a lot of data. And so, um, you know, it's a, it's a really specious uh, way to study this stuff, but it was influential at the time. He does um, say, basically, they went around um, to visit uh, relatives, neighbors, employers, teachers, physicians, ministers, overseers of the poor, almshouse directors, um, and they looked up these marriage records, and if they couldn't find a marriage record, they assumed that that was because somebody didn't want the marriage to be known because it was obviously undesirable. 
So there's all kinds of stuff embedded in this that has nothing to do with inheritance, has nothing to do with heritability. There's all kinds of class embedded in this. Um, there's issues of um, racism and the, the ways that um, we think of uh, intelligence are incredibly um, single-minded in this whole study. But this is, as I said, very influential at the time for talking about how we can deal with the problem of these uh, feeble-minded individuals. There was one study that I read that um, said that a, um, I, think it was, I think they said a Bulgarian in Boston uh, at the turn of the century would have, in 50 years, would have something like um, a thousand descendants and the same Harvard-educated graduate in Boston over 50 years um, would have only 50. And this was evidence that, you know, if we let these people procreate, they're just going to overwhelm the ability for the state to, um, to function and to pay for them because these people become wards of the state, right? They become a problem for society. So the way to do that is to make sure that they don't continue to procreate. Yeah. I don't know if there's been any retrospective studies, but this is just so lame that it would, you know, it's sort of, it's, it's essentially dismissed now, yeah. Uh, so what are we going to do about these mentally defective, feeble-minded people? Goddard says feeble-mindedness is hereditary and transmitted as surely as any other character. It's not exactly true now. We can know that from the data. We cannot successfully cope with these conditions until we recognize feeble-mindedness and its hereditary nature, recognize it early, and take care of it. In considering the question of care, segregation through colonization seems in the present state of our knowledge to be the ideal and perfectly satisfactory method. So send them off to idiot colonies, right? Let them procreate with themselves. Just don't pollute our races, right? Uh, sterilization may be accepted as a makeshift as to help to solve this problem because the conditions have become so intolerable. Well, I'll tell you what. Western civilization didn't collapse. And so um, we didn't really need all of this stuff. But it's a good indicator of kind of how um, psychological information and data can be used to try to influence public policy in ways that really isn't, um, it really wasn't a big deal, it wasn't an issue. And of course the data collection was uh, specious anyway. So, uh, as promised, um, this is an idea, this idea of um, hereditary intelligence is something that still sort of persists today. And uh, let me show you um, a contemporary example of how this plays out. How many people here know of um, a comedian named Carlos Mencia? Quite a few. Okay, uh, he is a uh, comedian, he has a TV show. Um, he um, is known for sort of mocking stereotypes or kind of using stereotypes in his humor. And so this uh, clip, those of you who have seen his show probably know what I'm going to play. This clip is um, depicting what happens when people who are stupid 
get together with people who are stupid and make more stupid people. Um, he borders on sort of making fun of people who are in some way um, uh, you know, mentally disabled or, um, uh, or um, who might be disabled mentally as part of an injury or something. So careful about that. I think his intent is not to do that. I think his intent is to um, make fun of just stupid people. Because there are that apparently that's what he's going to suggest yeah What's that? yeah 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 so um, I'm going to stop the podcast while I do this so I don't break any laws on uh, what does the actual data look like in terms of um, genetics well um, when we look at um, heritability of intelligence, we um, see an age effect. That is, that the heritability um, is different at different ages. Genetics plays a different role at different ages. Um, this is data from an article by Thomas Bouchard in 19, uh, I'm sorry, in 2004. And what Bouchard does, he's a behavioral geneticist, and um, what he does in his article is um, he pulls together a bunch of studies on genetics and behaviors, and intelligence is one of those behaviors. And he does what's called a meta-analysis. He takes all these studies, equalizes them using statistics, because there's a lot of um, variation in the studies themselves. And once you equalize them using statistical methods, you can combine the studies. And that makes them better because they're larger subject population, not subject or uh, sample sizes. Because um, most of these are small n studies. How do you study the effect of genetics separately from environment? How are you going to do that experimentally using the experimental method? First of all, let's go back to how experiments work um, from 201. Um, in an experiment, you have to have two groups, the experimental group and the control group. And so um, what you want to do is you want to hold all other factors constant except for the variable that you're manipulating, the independent variable. Um, in this case, we, the variable we're interested in studying is um, genetics and environment. There's actually two variables there. How are we going to hold um, one of those constant? Which one is easier to hold constant? Genetics. genetics why? Because you can use identical twins. And identical twins have the same DNA. So now you've got a pair of people who have exactly the same DNA. There's no variation in that variable. So the differences between those two people should be accountable for, not by genetics, but by other factors, right? Environment, essentially. So what's really great for psychologists, not for the kids necessarily, is when twins, identical twins are born and separated into different families at birth. And then later on, we can study those two individuals and compare their attributes. And then we can find out um, what environment has an effect, because genetics is the same. There's no difference in the genetics. So it's all environmental, any differences we find. I don't, I don't know, but 
The studies that he uses are mostly small n studies, small numbers of subjects. Um, and so that's why he has to use meta-analysis to throw a bunch of them together and, and do these larger analyses to get any reliable data. And what he essentially finds is, uh, as I said, this age effect from age 5, uh, and he goes up to age 26. And what he sees is an increasing effect over time of genetics on intelligence. Essentially what these numbers represent, 22% here at age 5 says 22% of the difference between um, intelligence scores at age 5 can be accounted for by genetics. The other 78% is accounted for by environment. So environment at age 5 has a huge effect. Um, that effect gets smaller by 10, quite a bit smaller actually, and by age 26, um, it's essentially reversed. Genetics has a very small influence, I'm sorry, has a, has a, a large influence, uh, environment has a smaller influence. So we have an opportunity at age 5 to make a big difference for children. Their environment is going to be important in terms of developing intelligence. Um, whereas later on in life, um, environment is not going to be so um, important. Questions? Yeah, yeah. So what kinds of factors are going to come into play environmentally at age five? Uh, being around other children. So whether you're exposed to other children, what else? Huh? Yeah. Parents. What about the parents? Um, the yeah, so the behaviors that a parent has in terms of teaching or interacting. What else? Yeah. So, um, so the very uh, variations, and well, we're not actually looking at the parents on these studies. We're only looking at the kids and the differences between kids, um, between uh, kids that were raised in different environments. And um, so, what else is going to have an effect at age five on developing intelligence? Nutrition. Nutrition, excellent. So now we're back to socioeconomic status, and that, again, all comes back to. Um, to class, race, and gender. <clears throat> okay, so uh, that's um, pretty much what I do in terms of talking about um, intelligence and heredity. And um, it's about 7.20 now. Um, why don't we take a break? Um, I'd like to take a little bit longer break. Um, can you come back here at 7.40, 20 of 8? And we'll pick up with um, talking about Terman and uh, Binet and the development of intelligence testing. Uh, we're back from our break. So, um, I'm going to move 
away from the heritability aspect of intelligence and talk a little bit about the ways that intelligence has been um, conceptualized and started to be measured. Now, at the time that um, Goddard is doing his stuff, um, the Binet test is actually pretty new. Um, and it's not something that um, has been used for a long time. So when we think about intelligence testing, the early intelligence testing, the, these two names should come to mind. Um, Alfred Binet and then Louis Terman. Um, Binet is contracted by the Parisian, uh, the Parisian government, the city government in Paris, to um, undertake a study of children in the schools. Um, I think he starts with orphans. I think they're interested in orphans. Um, they want to figure out, of the orphans that are doing poorly, is it because um, they're lazy, or is it because they're mentally defective? Right? And how are we going to know that? Well, um, Benet says, OK, well, let me come up with an intelligence test. And he designs a test that's going to measure three factors. First of all, their ability to understand directions. Um, the second, to maintain a mental set. Now, a mental set has to do with um, your ability to understand the context of situations, your ability to maintain um, information and ideas in mind, and the relationships and context between those ideas. And then um, the ability to correct your own errors. And that's you know, kind of what you were getting to with um, uh, you know, you find out that something leads to an undesirable consequence. Do you persist in that behavior, or do you change your behavior? Do you display um, adaptivity, right? Which is what we kind of, you know, we're kind of been pushing here. The idea that intelligence allows us to change our behavior and respond differently. Um, so Binet, uh, his test starts to become popularized. And it gets picked up over in um, California by Lewis Terman. And in 1916, he uh, publishes the Stanford-Binet uh, uh, Standardized Intelligence Test. And it's standardized to California schools, because the Binet test obviously had been developed in an entirely different cultural, historical context. Um, Terman uh, figures out he has to standardize it to California scores. And he standardizes different mental ages. So he has a test, uh, certain questions that key in on information that a three-year-old knows, a four-year-old knows, a five-year-old, up to 18 years old. And Terman comes up with this idea of an IQ. The IQ being a ratio, essentially, of a subject's mental age to their chronological age. So if I test you, the results of your test, the score that you give, is going to tell me what mental age you're at. And if you're 23 and I test you and it comes out that your mental age is 23, 
then um, your IQ is, it, well, it turns out to be 100. So your IQ is normal. And so this standardized uh, testing for each age is what is important for the um, Terman test. Now, the Terman um, intelligence test was developed for and used for children. Um, later on, we see um, some refinements which are useful for adults, too. Questions on this? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think the term and test might test for reasoning, but definitely the the later refinements, the Weish, uh, Weishler um, test does. Yeah, yeah. But that's a good that's a good point. I'm not sure how much this did, uh, how much Binet did reasoning. Um, uh, and what the different subscales might have been. So when we talk about um, an IQ score, um, we talk about measuring your mental age, comparing it with your chronological age. And if we divide the mental age by the chronological age and multiply it by 100, then we get your IQ score. So how does this actually look? Well, they did it in uh, age and months, but it works out the same way whether it's months or years. So if I um, have a 10-year-old chronological age is 10, and the mental age, the child tests out and it comes out that the child's mental age is eight, what we do is we um, IQ equals mental age over chronological age times 100. So 0.8 times 100 equals 80. Okay? Yeah, David, question. Uh, I thought it would be like, I, I didn't think it would be 80, I thought it would be 90. Why is that? No, it's 80. Yep, yep. Um, so 80, what? 80 smarts, 80 brain cells, 80 what? What does that mean? Essentially, yeah. 80% of the average intelligence score of people your age. Yeah. But that still doesn't tell us much about how intelligent this person really is relative to other people. Um, in order to figure out where this person lies um, in relationship to other individuals of the same age, because these scores are all uh, relative to other people at your chronological age, in order to find that out, we're going to need to employ some statistics. 
So put on your statistics hats for a second. Um, in statistics, there is something known as the normal distribution, um, a normal curve. And um, a normal curve occurs everywhere in nature. Um, it's, it, there's a funny uh, joke that God and psychologists love a normal curve. Um, it makes statistical processing a lot easier, for one thing. But if I were to say, um, go out here, uh, I think there's a tree out here, and um, I'd like you to collect at random 100 leaves from that tree. And I would like you to measure the length of each leaf in, mil leaf in millimeters from the tip of the leaf to the tip of the stem. And if I did that, I would get a normal distribution of scores. I would get a lot of scores at the average length, and I would get a decreasing number of scores as I moved away from that average length. And it's a predictable pattern. Um, and it's, it's what's known as a normal curve or a bell curve. How many people have heard the bell curve term? Yeah, OK. Um, so um, what the normal curve says is that, first of all, in the middle of the normal curve is the average. And the mean, the arithmetic average, is equal to the median in a normal curve. What's the median mean? means average, but in terms of the percentage of scores, what's that? The middle number, yeah. So half the scores are above the median, half the scores are below the median. So if I give you a list of numbers, um, let's say um, 1, 2, 4, 5, 6, 1, 2, 4, 5, 6. One, two, four, five, six. What's the middle number there? Four. So that would be the median. That isn't the arithmetic average. The arithmetic average would be slightly higher than, uh, it'd be slightly less than four. Um, but in a normal distribution, the mean is equal to the median. And 68% um, of all the scores are between one standard deviation below the middle and one standard deviation above. What's a standard deviation? Um, a standard deviation is the number where um, one is the number where 68% or 34% of the scores fall on either side of the median. That's all it means. This is a normal uh, IQ distribution. And so um, notice that 100 is in the middle here. Average IQ is 100. So this is telling me, first of all, that it's below the average IQ. Um, but better than that, notice that one standard deviation below, which is this line here, one standard deviation below the median is 85. One standard deviation above, which is this line, is 115. So what's the standard deviation? 
What's the difference between these two? 15, yeah. So the mean in an IQ score, mean is equal to 100, standard deviation is equal to 15. That's the way it's been since IQ uh, tests were developed. Um, so now, as I said, 68% of people will fall in between that range. So most everybody is between one standard deviation above and one standard deviation below. The second standard deviation occurs at this point, um, 30 points below and above the mean. And in between that number and 30 points below and 30 points above the mean, 95% of the scores will fall in that range. So virtually everybody is between two standard deviations of the mean. So if I test you on an IQ test and I tell you, hmm, you're two standard deviations above the mean, you might go, just two? But in reality, um, there's only two and a half, about, well, about two and a half percent of people that will have scored higher than you. What's that? Yeah, I should. I should. I don't know how. I think they're pretty long, though. It would take too long. Um, conversely, if I tell you that you are two standard deviations below the mean in IQ, that's not good because um, only two and a half percent of people have an IQ score lower than you. That means that. 97.5% of people have an IQ higher than you. And so this is useful for Binet because he can, he can create an arbitrary point here where they start saying, um, this is someone who's really stupid, somebody who's really dumb. And it's not because they're lazy that they can't, you know, that they can't perform. It's because they're mentally defective, you know, apparently. I don't know. Uh, I don't know what they were doing with the uh, with the students who were uh, found to not to have the intelligence to to do regular school. I don't know what they did with them. Right. Right. I don't know. Yeah. I have no idea. But you, but you couldn't really differentiate between the two then. That would be the problem. I guess if they just didn't answer it at all, they were just obstinate. Yeah. But that would uh, actually, according to uh, uh, Goddard, that would be part of the uh, feeble-minded constellation of behaviors, which um, I'll show you in a second. So... Um, so this is the basis, uh, this, this curve, this normal curve, this bell curve, is the basis for um, percentile rankings. So um, when I take, if I were to take a GRE, graduate record examination, 
And I were to score um, two uh, standard deviations above the mean on the GRE, I would have a percentile of 97.5, which essentially would mean that 97.5% of people who took the test scored below me. I actually did take the subject GRE because I was considering uh, enrolling in a graduate program in psychology, and I was a little worried about it because I teach this, right? So if I get a bad score on this, it would be hard for me to come back to class and actually have any credibility, you know, in my own mind at least, even if the students didn't know. But um, I got a, it's the subject GRE is all kinds of questions about all areas of psychology. So it's actually pretty difficult. And I got 88, 88th percentile, so whew, I redeemed myself just below an A. Um, questions on this? Yeah, David? Are all children in the United States required to take an IQ test? I don't believe so. Here's, um, I'll talk about this in a second. Um, remind me if I don't talk about um, um, IQ tests being used broadly. Yeah. Um, yep. No, not necessarily. Um, it can change. Is there um, I don't know what the aggregate data is on um, changes. Um, it um, it's always standardized at each age to. 100 being the mean, the mean, and 15 standard deviation. But I don't know over time what the typical change in IQ scores is. I suspect it's it's generally pretty stable, but I can't be certain of that. Yeah, that's a good question, though. So what has an effect on intelligence? Well. Um, we talked about heritability, that there is an effect of genetics on your intelligence. If your parents uh, were brighter, you probably have um, the propensity or the maybe some likelihood to be brighter. If your parents weren't so bright, you may have some propensity to be um, not so bright. But um, environment also has an effect. And age has this kind of relationship between genetic effects and environmental effects, where genetic effects are weaker at younger ages and stronger at older ages. So environment is much more important at younger ages uh, than it is at older ages. And so it really points at the um, value for younger children for things like uh, preschool and Head Start programs. Uh, because it gets, it gives them the environment that they may not have at home, especially for lower-income individuals who may not have a parent who has the time. If you're working two jobs and you're making just enough to pay the rent and put food on the table, 
um, you're under a lot of stressors and your time is soaked up with survival and you don't have a lot of time to provide that enriched environment for your children. So um, these kinds of programs can help offset some of those uh, differences. The other nice thing about preschool and Head Start programs is it gets children interacting with other children and doing this interpersonal awareness stuff that we know is related to emotional intelligence and we also know that um, children can be taught emotional intelligence. It's not something you just have or don't have, it can actually be taught. And anytime you can um, give your children an opportunity to socialize, it's going to help with that, especially if they're, if they're in a situation where um, adults are trained to uh, foster emotional intelligence. So, yeah, David, do you have a question? Yeah, personality um, development occurs pretty early. Um, we can start to see evidence of personality development um, before uh, preschool, for sure. Yeah. Yep. And um, you can't ever... Um, look at something like intelligence without considering the um, factors that are related, like um, impoverished environments and its relationship to lower achievement, but also stereotype threat. So um, I said I would get into stereotype threat here. What essentially is stereotype threat? Anybody want to propose a definition? Yeah. Yeah, when do we do that? Yeah, when do we live up to the stereotypes that we think other people hold of us? When we're in a situation where it becomes salient to us, where the stereotypes become activated in our minds, and that usually happens in the presence of other people who um, we think hold those stereotypes of us. If we're aware of the stereotype and we're in the presence of other people who we think hold those stereotypes, or other people who activate those stereotypes for us. So for example, if I were to take all of you, oh no, let's say if I was to take a um, classroom full of um, high school students, and I was gonna give them a math test. There's a broadly held stereotype that uh, boys are better at math and girls are better at English. Boys, uh, boys aren't so good at yeah. Boys aren't so good at um, uh, English. Girls aren't so good at math. If I were to take these high school kids, um, separate out the boys and the girls into two separate rooms, and have them take a math test, I'll get higher performance from the girls on that math test than I would if I had them take that same test in a room with both boys and girls in it. And this effect, this stereotype threat effect, shows up not only in gender, it shows up in um, race, it shows up in class. So because I know that this stereotype exists, when I'm in a situation where it becomes more salient to me, 
then what happens is I start doing a lot of kind of mental processing and worrying about the situation, about this stereotype threat. And that reduces, the, the theory is that that reduces the performance. Now that gets, that gets back into this um, question about um, uh, brain scan, I'll get to your question in a second, brain scan activity with girls, if they're doing more, if they see more activity in a, uh, in a neural scan, in a neuroanatomy scan, on a math test, it may not be that they're trying to figure things out more. It may be that they're trying to deal with this stereotype activation and deal with the negative uh, consequences of that in effective ways. So there's all kinds of things that could be happening. And I think stereotype threat would be one explanation for it. I mean, it would be interesting to see um, how that might play out um, differently. Yeah, a uh, question, Robert? So, like the, the people in South Carolina, you said, kind of take pride in not being educated. Is that kind of the same? I mean, you think they were separated from the other people they um, If they're among other people who sort of are educated and that kind of activates their um, stereotype threat, yeah, they would become much more aware of it, and they'd probably be thinking about it, and that would change their performance on uh, probably academic-related kinds of tasks. Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, you throw um, someone from a community college into a room full of Harvard students, they're going to have this stereotype activated, probably, that community college students aren't supposed to be as smart as Harvard students, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, actually, that's a good question. So is there any kind of um, um, evidence that uh, if I know about the stereotype threat and I know that I'm in a situation where it shouldn't affect me, that my performance will be better? I don't know. It generally does, yeah. I'm pretty sure that positive stereotypes wouldn't uh, be considered part of stereotype threat. Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. Evidence is kind of mixed on that, on um, uh, disconfirmation. I'm trying to create a disconfirmation of it. Um, I and I don't. The last time that I saw the evidence, it it wasn't really clear if that really happened or if it really worked. But generally, what we talk about in terms of stereotypes, and if um, you should take um, social psychology is fascinating. Um, generally, the information on stereotypes is that. Um, the more we're aware of the stereotypes that we hold as individuals, the more likely we can counter the behavioral effects of those stereotypes. And it's really the only way to counter them. Um, but in terms of stereotype threat, I don't know uh, what the effect is. Your example was just having one of the you know, no man in the room 
Yeah, there's more study of that. It's pretty, yeah, it's pretty solid. Yeah, the evidence is pretty solid in favor of it. Other questions, ideas? Okay, um, I'm going to stop this.